Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. We're a leader in patient retention strategy for healthcare organizations. What I like to tell folks is that we help clinics and health systems improve patient engagement and experience, leading to increased revenue and lifetime patient value. If you want to learn more about that, you can head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's rehab, the letter U, practicesolutions.com. This week, um, I'm going to play for you a webinar that we did tail end of last year, probably middle of 2021, about difficult conversations, having difficult conversations with clients, coworkers, patients, all of that kind of uh, anybody that you're going to be having a professional conversation with, right? And the reason I'm thinking about doing this is because I just finished the manuscript for my forthcoming book. The publisher says it should be ready to launch and in print in the fall of 2022. So if you're on the email list, look out for the notification. We'll send that out as soon as we know when the go live date will be. But one of the topics in the book is about leading patient engagements. And part of that role of clinical leadership or being the the lead in a patient engagement or encounter is this role of challenging mismatched or um, differing expectations about treatment, about the outcome on behalf of the patient or the client. So if you think about many times when a patient or a client has a negative experience in a healthcare facility or a healthcare organization at an appointment, if you dig down to the root of why did that patient have a negative experience or what were the factors that led to that patient being less than pleased with their healthcare experience, a lot of that has to do with either mismatched, misaligned, or differing expectations about what that patient was going to receive, what the benefits would have been, what the options or the outcomes would be, et cetera, right? And much of the time, in my experience, having been a professor in in an OT program, training students and and a consultant for the last several years, training and working with healthcare organizations across the globe, one of the, one of the pieces that kept, or one of the patterns, if you would, that I kept noticing was the fact that a lot of times those expectations, those um, misaligned um, thoughts about treatment and the outcomes and the uh, possibilities of, of what those outcomes would be and, and the benefits and all that kind of stuff, a lot of that could have been easily addressed at the very first encounter or engagement with that patient, but for some reason or another, it doesn't happen, either because the system is not set up to provide that level of detail to clients and patients, or because more often than not, somebody somewhere in the organization realized that there was an issue or a potential issue and failed to address it directly with that patient or client. This might be a, I come from the world of physical and occupational therapy, so it might be a PT that has an initial evaluation with a client and right off the bat, the, the, the client or the patient wants or is expecting some sort of treatment that maybe the evidence suggests is ineffective or, or shouldn't be used anymore, whatever the case may be. And instead of addressing that expectation head on, the the clinician, in an attempt to appease the patient, in, the, in an attempt to kind of smooth things over, kind of brushes that or sweeps it under the rug, and it ends up causing problems 
down the line when XYZ doesn't happen, when that treatment doesn't take place, when whatever the, the case may be, or whenever the outcome that the patient thought they were going to have doesn't happen, right? So this is, again, a, a webinar that we did on the topic in middle of 2021, all about difficult conversations with patients and clients. If you want to watch the whole webinar and see the slides and the illustrations, I don't think there's a whole lot of those in this um, webinar, which is why I decided to use this as the, the bonus episode this month. Um, you can head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com, click the drop down menu under insights and the page for webinars and workshops. And one of those links that will be near the middle of that list is going to be called uh, Say What You're Thinking. And that's, the, that's this webinar right here in all of its visual forms, the PowerPoints and the slides and all that. If you have any questions about it or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at info, I-N-F-O, at rehabupracticesolutions.com. That's info, I-N-F-O at rehab, the letter U, practice solutions.com. Without any further ado, here is uh, Say What You're Thinking, How Speaking Your Mind Can Improve Patient Engagement and Retention. Uh, welcome. We're going to be talking about having difficult conversations or just having conversations in general. I call them candid conversations with patients and coworkers as well. Um, but we're going to really focus on the patient-clinician interaction. So a lot of research has been done over the last decade or so and continues to, to be published about how the relationship between the treating clinician and the patient has an effect on long-term clinical outcomes, on patient satisfaction and retention throughout the course of care, all of that good stuff. And what we know because of what has been published is that um, oftentimes patients, we might, as clinicians, it might be difficult to wrap our head around this, but as patients receiving care, um, most folks that are in a clinic are really, um, they're there because they believe you can solve their problem or they believe that you're the person that can help them. So competency or clinical um, skills is really taken not for granted, but it's taken as kind of like just the the barrier to get into the door, right? They they wouldn't be in your clinic if they if they didn't think you had the skills sufficient to help them. But what the research has shown is that the the patients that are in your clinics and receiving care from your clinicians or from yourself, if you happen to be a, a, a solopreneur or a solo uh, practice owner is that their relationship with you or their interactions with you has much more of an impact on whether or not they continue their course of care, whether they, they you know, comply with your home exercise program or your recommendations and all that kind of stuff. And what we know from the literature, again, um, is that roughly seven out of 10 patients, I'm from uh, the occupational physical therapy background. So some of the literature I use is, is related to that just because that's what I'm used to. But um, about seven out of 10 patients that are referred to physical therapy in the United States do not complete their course of care. So um, that's a very, very large number. And what it, when cited or when gone back and asked, most patients say that um, it's, they didn't have a quote unquote good feeling about the clinician or it was just uh, awkward or whatever it is, but it has, it, it's usually an interpersonal reason, not so much a clinical skills or clinical competence reason why a patient might not um, complete their course of care. So let's dive in here. Um, this is a little bit about me. This is the part that no one truly cares about. So we're going to skip through it. Um, what are the highlights? Um, former academic. So I try not to be dull <laughs> and droll on about the research, but I, I see the value in research. Um, and I think it's important to discuss it. Um, I was at Charlie Nord VA Medical Center for a while. I've been a healthcare consultant uh, here in Georgia, which is a state that I'm based out of doing deinstitutionalization work for the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. We did integrated clinical care, um, managed uh, the caseload across the state for the department, that sort of thing. Um, and I do what I do now. So I'm, I'm the principal owner of Rehab U Practice Solutions. We're a patient engagement and retention strategy firm. You can learn more about us at rehabupracticesolutions.com. 
Um, and currently, I'm also the owner and operator of an outpatient multidisciplinary uh, rehab, rehabilitation clinic here in Augusta, Georgia. We're called Proactive Rehab and Wellness, and we do uh, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and massage therapy. And our uh, clinical specialization, if you would, is chronic musculoskeletal pain. So we treat a lot of patients um, who have either been to multiple clinicians or services or specialties before, and they're still looking for relief, post-surgical, all that kind of good stuff. That's kind of me in a nutshell. I was a professor at Augusta University up until last year when I left to, to purchase this clinic and, and kind of run it full-time. So why are we here? The important stuff, right? We're going to talk about and discuss the importance of having candid conversations with patients, the importance of building those skills. Um, we're going to discuss the importance really of addressing expectations with patients, leading patient engagement, and then demonstrating your expertise and value. Again, most of the times when a patient drops off their plan of care or stops showing up or ghosts you, a lot of times it has to do with one of these four things being um, lacking in their mind, either their expectations have not been met, which might be because they had unrealistic or um, inappropriate expectations heading into an engagement and they were never addressed. So then they were either let down or, or whatever. Uh, they felt like the, the clinician is not leading the engagement or leading them providing the counsel that they need. Um, this could be either because we're, we're doing a, a bad, a poor job of providing education and training, or it could be because when it comes down to decision-making, we're putting too much of a burden on the patients. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then demonstrating expertise and value. So again, they're in your clinic at the first appointment because they at least at some level believe that you have the, the clinical skills and the competence to uh, you know help them. Again, I'm from musculoskeletal pain, so I'll talk about that. So they believe that that you have the skills and the and the competence to help uh, overcome their back pain or recover from a knee surgery, whatever it happens to be. And if you do poorly in that first appointment, those two factors, the one, <laughs> do you have the experience and the competence can go down in the mind of the patient? And then also, do they perceive it as valuable? And we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. We're also going to talk and dive into four strategies that you can employ today when you're having difficult conversations with patients, this also transverse over to, to colleagues and bosses and, uh, you know, you and other partners in the organization, whatever, whatever works. Uh, we're going to focus though on the patient side of things, because that's what we care about here at Rehab U, building long-term real uh, relationships with patients. Um, and hopefully you'll walk away from today with some nuggets that you can use to improve patient engagement and retention in your own organization, in your own clinic today. So say what you are thinking. I'm going to go ahead and say that you need to speak your mind more than you are currently speaking your mind in your clinical interaction with patients. How often have you been in a situation, whether it be a, a new evaluation or a consultation or an assessment, whatever it happens to be, it's your first interaction with the patient, possibly on the, at the front end of a treatment plan or a plan of care. And the patient says something that just sounds off. Maybe it's an expectation of treatment. They, they think that you're going to, I don't know, use some treatment techniques that you're not familiar with or that you don't even believe in, that you believe the research doesn't uh, validate and support. Um, maybe they, they say something about the cost. Maybe they say something about the timing and the scheduling, whatever it happens to be. And in your mind, you believe that the, the reason that they're saying, I always say, talk about it like this with scheduling, oftentimes scheduling is a priority issue, not a true time conflict issue. So let's say the patient says something about the time for their appointment and their scheduling, and they say something to you that seems inconsistent with it being a true time conflict. Let's say it sounds like they're just not prioritizing it. How many of you would be willing and really compelled to address that with the patient? say, well, you know what? It doesn't seem like a, a time issue. It seems like you might not be prioritizing your, your care here. Um, and that's a difficult conversation to have, but you need to be in a position, you need to be confident enough to have those conversations with patients 
patients need you to be confident enough, um, both in your clinical expertise and in the value that you provide to have those difficult conversations with them, have those hard conversations, push back against unrealistic expectations, and to communicate the value that you bring to the table. Oftentimes, you know, we get this a good bit at the clinic here where a patient might be referred to us and they don't really know why they're, they're there. Their doctor said to go see physical therapy or occupational therapy. So they're just doing what their doctor said and showing up. And if you're not in a position to confidently communicate what you do, your role in the healthcare process and the recovery process and the value that that service is going to provide to that individual, the outcomes they can expect, they're going to walk away thinking that they're not going to complete their course of care, right? <laughs> Subconsciously, even they might not just be committed. The goal in all of this is to say what you're thinking in a confident manner. However, it, we also want it to be kind and empathetic or caring. So it is much tougher than it sounds to do that, right? Most of the time, um, things sound better in our head than when they're coming out of our mouth, right? <laughs> Many clinicians struggle with having those quote unquote tough conversations with patients. I firmly believe, especially being a, a former professor in an in a institution here in, a, in Georgia, that a lot of times that it's taken for granted. Per, interpersonal skills are, are often taken for, for granted, partly because they're, we're trying to get so much technical knowledge into these students by the time they graduate. We're filling their head with you know, statistics and p-values and t-values and evidence-based practice, which is wonderful, but then all the technical skills that go into it, the manual therapy, the, um, the hands-on skills, and for, you know, for better or for worse, oftentimes for worse, we don't spend as much time as we should on those personal skills, those interpersonal skills, which is really what is the what lays the foundation for a, th a strong therapeutic relationship moving forward. Um, and you know, there are some programs that do this really, really well. I believe the the program that I was a part of at Augusta University did a good job of both addressing the technical skills, but we spent a lot of time in on case-based learning and a lot of that the the cases that we use involve some sort of interpersonal conflict or interpersonal situation to help the students kind of brainstorm and work through that in a, in a dummy environment, if you would, where they're not doing it with real patients and they have time to, to practice that and build those skills because it is a skill. But your role as a clinician, whether you like to admit it or not, is to lead the patient or client through their course of care or throughout that engagement, if you would. We always say here at Proactive that our goal is to empower our patients to become um, drivers in their own healthcare, but part of that involves acting as their healthcare guide through the rehab process, and that's really what we should be doing. Um, it should mean that you, as the clinician, are or you know if you're if you're an administrator or a manager, I can see on the list here we've got a couple of folks that are, are are directors of rehab and that sort of thing. Um, your goal as a clinician or as an administrator is to make sure that your organization is collaboratively building with your patients the treatment plan, their goals, setting those long-term goals and the short-term goals to be more value-based on behalf of the patient. We want the patient to, one, buy into the, the plan of care because then they're going to complete it, but we also want them um, to be co-creators in that because it's going to engage them in the process and it's going to make it more valuable to them as opposed to, to saying, oh, my physical therapist wants my arm to get up over 90 degrees. And they're going to be saying, my physical therapist is helping me throw the baseball in the backyard of my grandkid, right? That's one is, one is much more valuable to the patient than the other. Um, but it also requires that you not sit back and passively let the patients continue either not complete their, their home exercise program or adhere to their protocols or whatever it is, continue in those inappropriate or unrealistic expectations or even behaviors that may be making their situation worse in the long run. I've had conversations with patients a lot <laughs> over, the, over the last 10 years about um, a lifestyle 
the, a lifestyle habit or, or something that they're involved in. When I was at the VA, a lot of times it was, it was substance related, right? Like you're, you say you're trying to get better and, and you want to be pain-free. However, you're doing these things, right? You're, you're drinking this much alcohol. You're not getting a lot of sleep. You're not doing any exercises. You're not moving enough to, to decrease some of those, those pain thresholds. Right. So we had to have those conversations with patients because if not, what ends up happening is you're doing what you believe is, is good and maybe even evidence-based work, but it's not getting any carryover on the day-to-day. You're only seeing somebody once a week or twice a week. There's still a lot of time in between for them to um, engage in those harmful behaviors. And part of being a, a leader or leading the patient through their course of care is addressing that throughout whenever they show up, right? So the hard skills, again, interpersonal and communication skills tend to not get as much uh, light as they, as they should throughout training, um, but they really are where the, where the money is made, where the relationships are truly made in healthcare. Um, I like to say that healthcare is a, is a human experience. It's one person uh, skilled in the art of healing, helping another person on their own road to recovery. And a lot of that involves having those have, having those conversations with patients, building relationships with patients, trust, rapport, you name it. And that is all on the quote unquote soft skills side of the equation. Doesn't matter if you've got great manual therapy techniques, um, if you know just the right exercise to prescribe, if you know just the right home protocol to give a patient if you don't build the trust, if you don't have them buy into their plan of care, it doesn't matter. Um, techno skills come natural to many clinicians, most clinicians, in fact. We've gotten into healthcare, we've gone through the, the treatment programs, um, or not the treatment programs, the educational programs that were very heavily, again, because of, of the time constraints, very much full of the technical aspect of things, right? It, it does not take... Um, a very long time for somebody to walk into my clinic and for me to begin already thinking, all right, you know, this aspect, this glen- the glenohumeral joint is, is causing some problems here. It looks like maybe their scapulothoracic joint is involved. You know, these muscles might be involved. That's pretty easy, especially once you've been doing it for a while. However, it's the other stuff. It's all that mushy stuff, right? The, the human aspect, the messy side of healthcare that becomes a little bit more awkward, right? We're not used to it. We're not, um, we're not used to having those conversations a lot of times. Um, we don't feel comfortable having those conversations because we haven't built the skills oftentimes. However, clients that we see or patients that we see in our clinics are more than just joints, tissues, pathophysiological processes going on, right? The technical information and the skills related to providing the treatment to address that diagnosis are only part of the healthcare experience, right? And they aren't the only thing to be mastered. We need to address the the interpersonal. So if you've followed me at all or Rehab You Practice Solutions at all, you know that we are big proponents of taking a biopsychosocial approach. And the reason we like it so much or that I like it so much is that the biopsychosocial approach provides a great framework for addressing the quote unquote uh, human factors of healthcare. It definitely takes into account the biomechanical, the, the anatomical, the pathophysiological processes going on. But the biopsychosocial approach, for those of you who haven't heard of it, I'm sure you have, but it's basically a framework for looking at healthcare that looks at a human being with three different components that are all interacting. The first one being the one that we we just talked about, right? The, the biological, the, the anatomy, that side. But then looking at um, the psychological or what's going on cognitively with an individual or within their mental health even, and then social and environmental. So where do they go to work? What is their background? What's their past experience with healthcare? And how has that impacted their expectations going into treatment now, for example? So if you haven't heard of the biopsychosocial um, approach, or if you want to learn more about it, we have a webinar on it. We've actually got a three-part free mini course on the website. You can go and and check that out as well. Or just read anything by folks like Lorimer Mosley and um, who's the guy in the U.S., Adrian Lowe. Um, folks that, that have been doing this for a long time and researching it, 
um, and bringing that information to us as a, especially in the rehab world in our industry. So the need for difficult conversations, um, we need to have them <laughs> because every patient is a unique individual, right? Um, so clinicians, you, myself, people that we employ, um, clients that I work with, um, we need to learn to master those interpersonal communication skills because we need to be able to tailor the way we are talking or the information we are sharing or how we are sharing it to that specific individual in that specific situation, right? Again, healthcare should very much be individualized. And that extends way beyond just the basic uh, patient education and treatment recommendations. Of course, you should be trying to individualize those as well, right? Um, but the entire process of care becomes a relationship with you and that patient. Uh, we talk about the relationship, patient relationship cycle a lot of rehab you practice solutions. And that's kind of the, it's modeled and patterned very much after like the, the trans theoretical model of change where you've got these different phases and patients and their interaction with you and their organization kind of fall under that same, almost the same cycle, right? They might not know you, then they're coming into contact with you, whether it be through your marketing, through your messaging, or through what other clinicians are saying about you, maybe referral partners or uh, their primary care who says, we're going to send you to um, ABC Physical Therapy, and we've, we've heard some really good things about them. Well, that's influencing their relationship with you before you even see them, right? Um, so in order to have these conversations, to be in a position where you're, where you're impacting the relationship from the beginning, a lot of times that's going to involve having those discussions with patients that might be uncomfortable, maybe they're even difficult or challenging. Again, think of something like substance abuse or harmful um, health behaviors that are going to negatively impact this patient and their recovery. Um, and the big one for us that we always see, especially in the outpatient physical therapy world, is the importance of active versus passive treatment strategies. I can't tell you how many patients come into our clinic and to the clinics uh, that I consult with and work with, and their main expectation is that you're going to, quote unquote, do something for them and they're going to feel better. Um, and all the research around this, we've written a, a, a long article on this, again, on the website, but the research around active versus passive treatments is pretty uh, concise <laughs> in that um, active treatments provide much better long-term outcomes than a passive treatment, where maybe you're just doing mobilizations and sending the patient on their way or doing ultrasound or e-stim or even dry needling, which is kind of in vogue these days, and then sending the patient on their way. If all you're doing and all the patient is expecting is that you're going to provide these passive treatment options and they're just going to lie back and get healed or, or feel better afterwards, they're going to have poorer long-term outcomes than if they had been participating in an active treatment program. So this uh, probably is the, is the difficult conversation that you will have the most opportunities to uh, engage in throughout your clinical practice, whether you're a manager or whether you're not. Um, I'm an owner here at, at Proactive, and I hear it from patients every now and then, like, oh, your, your PT said they're not going to do XYZ, and we have to have those conversations, right? Um, it's very, very important. And when you have those difficult conversations with patients, when you are vulnerable enough to put that on the line, that builds trust and builds rapport with that patient. And that patient will then begin to trust you more, will begin to see that you are invested enough in their uh, healthcare and their recovery that you're willing to not offend intentionally, but willing to, um, to have those difficult conversations to be uncomfortable for the sake of improving their healthcare. And that goes a long way for patients. Um, you need to address all these areas, harmful lifestyle habits, mismatched expectations, um, and even the role that they, the, the patient or the client needs to play in their own treatment plan. Again, that active versus passive treatment approach mentality is going to be probably over the next few years, the difficult conversation that we as an industry are going to have, especially in the rehab world, right? <clears throat> these conversations often are difficult. They're often uncomfortable. Sometimes they're even awkward. Um, they can even get tense and heated if the patient is um, a not a frequent flyer. That sounds, that sounds bad, but somebody who's sought care from multiple providers over the years and just has an in-ground way of 
of expecting treatment to be delivered. Um, they can be uncomfortable, but they're essential, again, for building that rapport, for establishing trust and building those long-term relationships with patients. If you do this right, you have these conversations, um, you'll have patients call you back later asking your advice about XYZ. Um, maybe it's, this happened to us the other day. So we had a patient in here, I saw them for uh, lateral epicondylitis, maybe they had seen a couple other providers and then they, they landed in our clinic. I saw them, um, treated them, they were all right enough that they, we felt comfortable discharging. This patient called back last week and you know, they're their aunt or something like that, some family member had an issue with their, with sciatica, with their lower back and sciatica and wanted to know what the treatment options were. If I had any recommendations, yada, yada, yada. Um, and we were able to pull this patient in or this, this, uh, this patient's family member in, um, get them evaluated and start them on a plan of care. That's going to help now this other patient. Um, so from a business side of things, like that's amazing. We turned one, one patient into, into another with, by word of mouth referrals. Um, but it also speaks to the relationship that this patient had with our clinic was that this person felt that we were, um, not just there to, to punch a clock, to get the numbers where they needed to get, but we were invested in this person in their care. And she felt so strongly about it that she felt comfortable referring her family member to us. And that's, that's what you want in the long run. Um, and then there's also the, the, the chance that this person might need therapy or treatment down the line, and they're going to think about you because they know that you care about them and that you're invested in their, in their recovery and their overall health. Um, so let's talk a little bit about these difficult conversations. When was the last time you had a difficult conversation with a client or a patient? Um, if you are truly engaged and engaging your patients throughout a process of care, um, the opportunity and the instances of having these, these conversations goes up, right? If you were just moving patients through a standard assessment or treatment protocol, maybe they don't come up as much because you're not really digging deep into, into the, some of those things like expectations, value, uh, lifestyle habits, that sort of thing. Um, what was the topic or the issue that led to the conversation? Was it a mismatched expectation? Was it a scheduling conflict? Um, was it money related? Was it related to the, the patient either not making co-pays or are you a cash base or out of network clinician that's trying to have these conversations with patients about how much your services are going to cost them? Um, that tends to be a big one as well. Think about how you handled that conversation. Did it feel awkward? Uh, did you know what to say? Were you confident in having that conversation because you've had them before multiple, uh, multiple times, or you just maybe just went to a, a class about it and, and you felt uh, comfortable implementing some of those strategies. Um, what was the outcome? Did you feel like you and the patient both walked away from that experience um, with a stronger relationship, uh, maybe even more respect for the other? If you're having those difficult conversations and you or the patient is walking away feeling disheartened, um, not listened to, steamrolled, whatever you want to call it, then it means that you've got some area to improve in this, uh, in this area of having difficult conversations. Let's look at an example from practice. Uh, difficult conversation with disgruntled patients. Um, as, a former, uh, as a former person that used to work at the VA medical center, I'm, I'm very versed, well-versed with, with having difficult conversations with patients that are just unhappy, right? <laughs> um, for some reason or other, they're just unhappy. Oftentimes that that uh, healthcare system was because of some of the process of care um, and some of the, the barriers to, to getting appointments and things like that. But one of the most frequent uh, culprits that we see um, that most of my clients experience is uh, mismatched expectations. So maybe... Um, the patient expects you again to provide some passive treatment, or maybe it's going to be about the way you're going to provide the treatment. Is it going to be via telehealth or virtual services or coming into the clinic multiple times, whatever it happens to be. But the research does show us that expectancy effects, which is um, if I think that something is going to, if I expect something to be that way, the effects of that um, have long-lasting influence and in the impact on both the actions that I take as an individual, but then my cognitive processing, so my perception 
of the value or of the experience itself. So again, if a patient comes in with mismatched expectations or inappropriate expectations, those expectations are having a larger impact, maybe even that you realize on the way that they are perceiving the care that they're, they're getting, whether they believe it's better or worse or higher quality or even valuable. Um, and it can affect their, their behavior, right? If they don't believe it's valuable, if they think that it's um, less than, they're, they're not going to continue to show up and pay for it, right? So if you don't address expectations early enough, like early as in the first appointment, that initial consultation, you risk the client becoming disengaged down the line or just unhappy with the treatment that they're provided. I mean, think about it. If you thought you're getting uh, a bag of apples and you get home and you open up a bag of oranges, you're going to be a little miffed, right? It's not what you wanted. Um, and possibly even angry with the experience that they have in your clinic. Um, so managing those patient expectations should be a top priority. What we do here at the clinic is part of our intake process at Proactive involves getting from the patient in their own words, what their expectations for treatment are, um, their past experience with, we're PT and OT mainly, so what their past experience with physical rehabilitation has been. Um, and then what they hope to get out of treatment. Those are the three big things that we get from them before we even put them on the schedule. And then we hand that off to the clinician. So the clinician knows, okay, this patient has seen maybe ABC physical therapy down the road. Um, they're expecting this kind of treatment or they're expecting me to, you know, to relieve their back pain, for example. And what they want to get out of it is X, Y, Z. Maybe it's decreased back pain. They want to sleep through the night. They want to get back to work, whatever it is, but you get that information beforehand. And then we instruct our clinicians to address all three of those with the patient on that first appointment. So, Hey, tell me about um, the last time you were in physical therapy. I heard you went and saw, you know, whoever it was. Um, how did that go? What was the outcome? What did they do? What did they focus on? Okay. Um, then, you know, you said uh, you, you expect this out of treatment. Is it um, because you found that it, it improved your symptoms or was it just what they did to you before? And you think that that's what physical therapy is supposed to do. Um, and then this, the, finally you address the goal. So, okay, you, you expect to be able to, you know, walk up the stairs without pain. Um, and then you can dive into building a treatment plan with them. Um, having difficult conversations. So again, um, how do you go about initiating one of these, uh, either I used to joke all the time when I was at the VA, they put us through a training and it was the, the crucial conversations framework. Um, so we talk about it at the clinic a good bit. We're about to have a crucial conversation. Um, so how do you go about actually initiating one of these crucial conversations with a patient? Um, what if a patient says something, let's say during an assessment or during an initial evaluation, um, that might lead you to believe that they have at least mismatched or unrealistic expectations about treatment. Maybe they truly believe that you're going to be providing a lot of passive treatments to them. They, you know, their last physical therapist did a lot of ultrasound and manual therapy, and that's what they think you're going to do to them. Um, there are a couple good uh, frameworks that I like to use. Um, Again, the crucial conversations framework is a good one just because it's a it's well tested. It's it's got um, a very it's very methodical. So you can kind of walk through the steps and okay, I'm in this phase of the conversation. I'm going to state my path and I'm going to you know listen to the other person's uh, reaction to that and then we're going to brainstorm. Like it, it kind of walks you through it. Um, there's a great book by a, a lady named Kim Scott. Uh, she used to be at YouTube. I'm pretty sure she's out on her own now, own now, but she oversaw, she was at Google overseeing uh, when Google decided they were going to monetize YouTube and they were going to do the ads manager and the ads partner. So that huge thing, you know, we hate ads on, on YouTube ads, but that's what she was overseeing the implementation of that. So she was seeing, um, or she was dealing with a team that was global. She had, I think it was like six or seven different time zones that they were all part of. Um, from the US all the way down to like Japan. Um, and she talked, uh, the whole book is about, I think that the subtitle of the, of the book is how to be a kick-ass boss without losing your humanity. So she talks a lot about that interpersonal interactions of the, on the part of like maybe an administrator or a boss and their subordinates or a manager and their subordinates. But a lot of those principles carry over very, very well to, uh, to patient care. And a lot of what her framework has to do really is 
is at the baseline of it is empathy and understanding the the person's um, point of view in that situation. So look both of those books up. I think I'm pretty positive there are courses on both of them. If you don't want to read the whole book, um, the audiobook for Radical Candor is pretty good on Audible. So um, go look at those. But let's talk about the basics of having a difficult conversation with a, a patient that's in your clinic. There are a few principles. I'm going to lay them out and then we're going to dive into each one. So the first, the first principle is don't shy away. It is not something that we want to sweep under the rug. If you notice that there is an area that needs to be addressed, the worst thing you can do for a relationship is to bury it. I mean, that's like, if you're married, that's like marriage 101, right? Um, but it, it definitely is applicable in healthcare where we're talking about building relationships, especially in the rehab world where I'm from, where we're seeing patients multiple times a week for, you know, six, eight, sometimes 12 weeks. Like we're trying to build a relationship. And if we start sweeping stuff onto the rug on day one, it just does not bode well for long-term. You'll have patients. Um, that's why patients no show and stop showing up and maybe even leave negative reviews. Um, you'll have those patients that will say, Oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then go leave a negative review because they weren't fine. <laughs> um, we want to employ empathetic active listening. Um, you want to allow the other person to feel heard, hence the active listening. Because when people feel heard, they feel validated. They let their guard down. They're more open about getting down to the root of whatever problem there is or whatever issue um, precipitated the crucial conversation, right? Um, you want to provide context so the background, why you might be initiating this conversation, um, restate your objection or your feedback or your education even. So um, this might be something as simple as providing a little bit of background about let's, we've been using active and passive treatments for a while. So let's stick with that in that vein of thought. So a little bit of context around um, what has informed your thinking about active versus passive treatments. Um, give them a little bit of context, you know, maybe you went to a course or you've seen several patients and you've, you know, that have relied on this type of treatment versus that type of treatment. And, you know, you saw the differences in the outcomes and that's why restate your objection. That's why we really take this type of approach at this clinic. Um, but you want to provide the patient with, or the listener, if this happens to be your boss or a subordinate, you want to provide them a little bit of context for why you're about to say what you're about to say. Um, and then you don't wanna take anything or make anything personal, right? Um, at the end of the day, we're all humans and this is much easier said than done, especially when emotions run high, but you need to do your best, especially as the clinician, as the person leading the, the engagement with the patient to make sure that when you walk away that you, you're not harboring any ill will towards the patient because that's going to affect your relationship with them in the long run. So let's look at don't shy away or uh, stepping into it, if you would. Um, so humans, biologically, probably evolutionarily, um, we tend to avoid conflict. Uh, and this is probably why um, societies have been built, right? <laughs> because regardless of whether or not people look different than us, whether they believe different things than us, um, maybe they're engaged in totally different lifestyles than us, as humans... From an evolutionary standpoint, we don't rock the boat. That's why we can walk in New York City where there's a thousand different people of all different races, creeds, religions, colors, you name it. And we all smile and wave for the most part. You smile at somebody, they're going to smile and wave back. Um, again, modern society, our, our big globalized world, it knits together all of us from many different backgrounds. And this uh, aversion to conflict or this um, tendency to kind of not rock the boat and to smooth things over helps society run very, very smoothly, right? It's, like, it's why we're not knifing each other in the streets or getting into fist fights because people say something that we find offensive or um, are engaged in behaviors that we don't agree with morally or personally. And that's great for a society. That's very, very good for uh, modern society, for culture, for a city, for a for a county, for a town, for a, a country to not get torn apart because of the little things that divide us or that, that make us different. However, um, and we'll talk about it in a minute, um, it's very 
counterproductive. That idea of smoothing things over and not rocking about is very counterproductive on one-on-one and individual relationships. So for some folks, and I've, I have a couple of staff members right now who um, have visceral reactions to, to, to conflict with somebody. Um, one of my, one of my employees was talking to me the other day, like, Oh, I'm, I'm just getting hot thinking about having this conversation with this patient. Um, because, you know, thousands and thousands of years of evolution have kind of programmed us to avoid conflict because we want society to run smoothly. Um, and it is, again, it's very beneficial for, for groups of people, for large, large groups. However, avoiding conflict is actually damaging in one-on-one situations. If you've been through any kind of, um, relationship counseling or any kind of read any of those books about building strong relationships with your spouse or your partner or anything like that. They, they talk about it as well. Like the importance of addressing things up front, not letting things fester. Unlike interactions in the greater fabric of society, you know, walking down the street or to the market, one-on-one interactions require trust. They require understanding and they require meaningful dialogue. And sometimes to build that trust, we need to have a difficult conversation, right? So clinicians or the, the administrators, whatever, you need to make sure your, your clinicians, your staff are tackling these barriers or stumbling blocks from the very beginning, from that very first appointment with the patient, because it's going to set the tone for the rest of the relationship. It helps build trust. It establishes leadership within the patient-clinician relationship, because again, we want to do it in a way that's empathetic, in a way that's caring, But at the end of the day, the clinician, I'm speaking to you, those of you who are clinicians here, um, you have a responsibility to lead the engagement with your patient. Um, And that is only really going to happen if you're taking the time, if you're invested enough to have those difficult relationships with the patient. Um, Again, this this type of approach is going to do all of what I said earlier. We're going to, we're going to, Uh, prevent those incorrect or mismatched expectations or assumptions. Um, And we're going to be able to cut those off at the very beginning of a relationship and kind of set the relationship off on the right foot so that both you as the clinician in the organization and the patient walking away from that first appointment are on the same page, so to speak, or singing from the same song sheet. Y'all both have an understanding of what the goal is for this treatment plan, what the what each of you expects out of the other, um, and then the kind of the roadmap for them getting there, right? The next step is to employ empathetic listening. So again, active listening, we want to be able to not only just hear what a patient is saying to us, but we want to be able to understand. There's a difference between hearing and understanding or hearing and listening. Um, but it helps you, active listening helps you hear and recognize when a potential conflict may arise. We want to leverage empathy in this. So we want to understand why this patient might be, you know, why this patient might have this expectation. Um, Is it because they've had a previous experience with healthcare before, with a healthcare provider before, and that has set them up for this expectation? Um, We want to understand the patient's point of view. Um, That allows you to pick up on those red flags that you need to address, Right. Um, in order to address them in a way that is collaborative, um, you need to be armed with the information and the context that only comes from listening to that patient. Because you want to be able to say, listen, you mentioned this a while ago, and I have a feeling that's why you think I'm supposed to X, Y, Z, fill in the blank, right? Um, and that does two things. One, it provides the context, but also tells the patients you were actually listening to them and you cared enough about what they were saying that you're going to address it now. That helps build trust. Um, an example here, let's say a patient says something about, um, about treatment that makes you think that they have mismatched expectations. Again, when I did this, uh, last year as a keynote, maybe I was thinking more about active and and passive treatments. We're just going to ride on with that, (laughs) that example. Um, how you address those expectations requires that you've truly heard the patient, that you understand their point of view and that you then frame whatever the objection is or whatever your feedback to that expectation is in a way that tells the patient and reflects to the patient that you heard them, that you listened to them, that you understood them. And then this is why I'm not going to do what you want me to do or um, whatever, whatever that objection is going to be. Um, how might you approach it? Um, what might you say or how might you bring it up? 
oftentimes, especially in the context of a patient, let's say a consultation or, or an assessment, it's very easy to say something along the lines of, hey, you mentioned this a while back, and I have a feeling that's why you believe X, Y, Z, or it seems to me that um, that's affecting your expectation for treatment. Well, let me tell you about how we do things here or the approach that we take here. Um, or I think there's just something I want to address before we move any forward. That way we're both um, kind of on the same page about where we go from here. Anything like that helps patients, right? Um, so a, a sample might be, um, it seems you have whatever the expectation, um, an expectation that we're going to do a lot of passive treatments here. Um, I just want you to know that we actually, or at this clinic, we take, insert whatever it is, we take a biopsychosocial approach, we take a more active-based treatment uh, approach here so that we don't rely a whole lot on those passive treatments. We might use them at the beginning, but the goal is to phase them out by the time you're, you're ready for discharge, right? If I'm doing a manual therapy with you on your very last treatment, on your discharge date, it means I've done something wrong, right? Um, and that's usually how I'll frame it to a patient because then that puts it in the context for them, provides them the context that this is where I'm coming from. And this is my approach. This is my philosophy of care. I mean, this is why he's choosing X, Y, Z. And then you give them the opportunity to say something back, like, how does that sound to you? Or is that consistent with what you had in mind? Whatever it happens to be. Um, it has three different outcomes of what we're shooting for with, with some kind of exchange like this. It establishes that you were listening to them, right? Because you said, you mentioned this earlier, or it seems like blah, 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 blah. Um, you provided to them the, um, you signaled to them that you heard them at least, and that you're, you're, you're trying to address what they said or what they mentioned or alluded to. Um, it shows that you feel there's something that requires further dialogue. Again, if you're invested in a relationship, you are going to take the time to go out on a limb and address something, even if it's going to be uncomfortable. And patients see that, they recognize that, it builds trust with them. And then it communicates that you're open to them, to willing to hear more about why they might believe that or where this expectation come, came from, or maybe even just to understand their point of view a little bit more. Um, you want to allow patients to feel heard, right? Um, many patients are used to being talked at by healthcare providers as opposed to dialogued with. Um, think about it, they go to a doctor, the doctor's seeing 50 patients a day, so they get seven patients, seven minutes with each patient, and they come in, they say, this is what's going on, this is what you need to do, here's some pamphlets about whatever, um, make a decision, um, we'll see you again in six months. Um, or they go to a specialist that maybe has a little bit more time, and then they get talked at about what um, what they're doing wrong, what the clinician is going to do to them that's going to make them better, or do for them that's going to make them better. Um, while patient-centered care is supported in the literature, um, and it has been for the last decade or, or more, um, many clinicians still rely on a hierarchical approach to healthcare, which is, I'm the clinician, you're the patient, I am the fount of wisdom that will bestow upon you what is required for your healing or for your healthcare, and you will follow it, right? Um, and it's very much clinician on top, client on the bottom. However, <clears throat> this dynamic, if you would, um, really does not do a whole lot in the way of helping build trusting long-term relationships. If the patient believes that you're just barking orders at them or you're just dictating to them, they're not opening up themselves enough to develop trust, to develop that rapport with you, um, and the relationship just kind of suffers all around. So you want to ask questions. Open-ended questions tend to be the best, if you can. Um, questions that reflect or have the patient open up about more um, internal things. So, why might you feel that way? Um, what in your, you know, what in your past or what in your past experience with healthcare makes you makes you expect this or uh, makes you fearful of that or whatever it happens to be. You want to prompt patients to provide more information, more background, more context all the time. Every every single time a patient is uh, struggling with something or has, has difficulty or um, a complaint even, you want to have them provide as much background, as much context as possible for two reasons. Again, one, it makes them feel heard and validated. And then two, it gives you enough information to make a decision about either the, the course of care, where you're going to be going, about how you're going to address it. Um, that's not made with just uh, bits and pieces that you've gotten from their complaint. So some questions that I like to use a lot are, is this consistent with your understanding? Or does that sound like something you were thinking? Or tell me if I'm missing something here. 
um, especially if you're addressing lifestyle um, habits and that sort of thing. It's it's very nice to be able to say, you know, tell me if I'm missing something here. But you're you you know you told me at your initial evaluation you want to um, let's say walk around with no back pain, but you're doing these things that are going to cause back pain, right? <laughs> like, am I missing something here? Um, you the next step is to provide that context for the patient. Again, the context of why you might be saying what you're about to say or what you just have said, that objection that you just raised, and then restate that position. So after you prompt the other party to clarify their position, you need to do the same so that you both understand where both of you are coming from, right? So you're responsible um, to provide the context and the clarification for whatever you're about to say next, right? Whether it be um, addressing an expectation, whether it be dealing with a complaint or addressing a complaint that the patient might have or um, some kind of unhappiness they might have with the treatment they're receiving. The easiest framework here is just you restate the other party's position, you provide your own context and info, and then restate your objection. So something like, um, listen, I heard that you're, um, or you, you just said that you, you really expect me to provide, let's say, dry needling. Um, just, you know, we've, we've talked about it before, but, you know, I'll, I'll just say it again, like given just your diagnosis and where we're at and just the, our philosophy of care here and what the evidence suggests around dry needling and let's say, you know, neck pain, um, the, the literature shows that, that it might not be in your best interest to do dry needling or whatever. So that's, you know, why I'm recommending that we don't proceed with that. So you've, you've restated their party's position, right? Like you, you've told them, okay, I'm hearing that you really, really want dry needling. Then you provide your context. I've done this a lot. I've looked through the research a lot. The research really shows that in your case, it's not going to be beneficial. In fact, it might even be harmful. Um, and then you restate your position or your objection. So I really, really believe that we, we, should, we should try to avoid that and maybe move uh, to more some kind of insert active treatment, right? Maybe isometric stretching or whatever it happens to be. Um, so again, let's use an example of a patient with unrealistic expectations. How much you say this again, it seems like your idea of treatment involves, let's say dry needling in situations like this. Um, we've found in our experience, treating a lot of patients with, with neck pain like you, um, and then looking at the, re the research and the literature and going through, to, through multiple courses, um, that it might not actually be beneficial for you. So in this case, I would really recommend that we focus on, um, let's say isometric stretching and isometric stretching protocol. Um, and by doing that, you've had the time you've, you've done all three things, right? You've restated their kind of what they have told you and you've made them feel heard and validated and listened to you're inserting the context. You're not just pulling this out of the blue. Like, Oh, I don't, I don't believe in dry needling. So we're not going to do it or whatever it is. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> um, you're giving them context so that they understand where you're coming from. And then you're restating that. Okay. Um, which is like in this case. So I really believe we should do this treatment, this isometric stretching treatment instead of this passive dry needling treatment. Um, you can also add at the end, like, how does that sound to you? Like, does that, does that make sense to you? Do I need to explain something more or do you understand where I'm coming from? I just really want to make sure that when we're providing you treatment, that you're getting the best treatment that's going to be the most effective for your situation. And that's why I kind of believe X, Y, Z, you can even restate it again if you wanted to. Um, and most patients will understand that, or they hear that they might not be happy with it. You might still need to come up with a compromise. Um, and we've done that with patients a lot too, you know, like ultrasound isn't really going to help you, but the patient really, really wants it. We've kind of gone through this process and then we say, okay, well, how about we try, an ultrasound treatment for a, a couple of weeks will kind of try to phase you out of needing the ultrasound, right? And that works for patients too. Um, <laughs> um, and then the last point is don't make it personal, right? You don't want to take anything that's said in one of these conversations personally, especially in manner, matters of, of healthcare, chronic conditions, that sort of thing. We deal with patients a lot of times that have been bounced around from clinic to clinic. By the time they come see us, they might have already seen three or four physical therapy clinics before or two or three different specialists or had this injection or that surgery or whatever it happens to be. Um, and they're frustrated oftentimes with the healthcare system. They're frustrated. They still feel pain. They're frustrated. They haven't gotten better. They're frustrated that they, that they just keep getting sent to somebody else. Right. 
Um, and when patients are in those situations, they will often say things that might be or can be interpreted as an insult, right? Um, but it's very important, again, to understand if you're taking a biopsychosocial approach, where they're coming from, their context, their past experience with healthcare. And this might be why they're, they're saying something that I might be tempted to take as an insult. Um, matters of health cause emotions to run high. It runs, um, uh, it can cause emotional distress even. Um, and so people lash out, fight or flight really takes over there. Um, and a patient's inappropriate expectations may actually stem from, again, those past experiences with other healthcare providers. Um, maybe they did a Google search and they have incomplete information, right? Um, they read the WebMD article about it and now they, they, um, they have expectations about what treatment should look like, but their WebMD article didn't take into account their other comorbidities or XYZ or whatever factor it might be that would make you pick a different treatment option. Um, and or their, their emotions, right? Fear, anxiety, what we know from the literature. If you've read, there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And he goes into very, very great detail about um, the fight or flight mechanism, the amygdala, and um, how when that mechanism is activated, we are incapable of logical thinking because it is fight or flight. We're, that's a brainstem issue. We're talking about survival. Um, we're doing what is required to survive. And we're not, we don't have the cognitive ability if we are in a fight or flight state of mind to have rational thought, to lay down the pros and cons. It's going to be a very emotional knee-jerk reaction because it's all about survival in our brains. And our patients might be in that very same standpoint especially if they come in maybe thinking that, that you're just going to push them off or that maybe they've seen three or four physical therapists, there's nothing you can do for them. So they're going to, they're just going to tell you up front and they've been working up the courage maybe all week before their appointment to tell you that they don't think you're going to do anything for them. Right. Um, and the patient that comes into that clinic in a very emotional state, and they're not in a position to, to listen to what you have to say, to even make a rational decision. So you have to give them the opportunity. One, you, you need to go back to earlier to that active listening. You want to provide some context. You want to show them that you're there to just to listen, just to listen and to validate their expectations or their experiences. And that will help lower that fight or flight mechanism response in them, right? And then once you get there, then you can get to the point where you can have that conversation about treatment plans, yada, yada, yada. Um, but you have to understand at the very beginning when they come in in that emotional state that whatever they say is really not pointed towards you. It's probably pointed towards their frustration with their situation or the, the system, so to speak. Um, and patient may, may say something that seems like a personal attack, but it really might stem from, again, that emotional reaction related to their, their situation. Uh-oh, somebody has a uh, fire alarm going off. Well, hopefully you're safe wherever you are. Um, summary and takeaways. So the, the last little bit here. Healthcare is a relationship-based profession. Again, it is one person that is skilled in the art of healing, helping another person on their own unique road to recovery. Um, relationships often require times of conflict and resolution in order to build that trust. You need to have those difficult conversations in order to build that rapport with patients sometimes. Um, and it requires, again, empathy, active listening, allowing the other party to feel validated and heard, and then caring enough about the relationship not to shy away from it, um, not to shy away from those difficult conversations. Um, somebody, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to, but they said something along the lines of, um, we get, we personally um, have fear or have anxiety from things that we are not um, willing to do, or we get stress because of things that we're avoiding. Um, so it definitely affects us as well, and not just the patient. If we're not um, willing to have that conversation or we're, we're anxious about how, how my ghost, so we're avoiding it, that's going to be a source of stress for us. And that's going to get picked up in your interaction with the patients. Um, clinicians that rise to the challenge will find themselves developing that, those long-term, long-lasting relationships with their patients, and they can leverage those formations, their, those relationships to promote better outcomes. So a lot of research has come out, especially in the last five years, about leveraging the relationship that you have with a patient and how that relationship in and of itself can be used 
to improve clinical outcomes. And that goes way beyond the scope of today's um, today's webinar, um, but it is super fascinating. Go read about it. Your relationship with the patient is probably um, the most important thing in the equation, more so than your manual skills, than the treatment techniques, um, than whatever whiz-bang device you're going to use. Your relationship with the patient is the most important, and we need to learn how to, to leverage that. If you want to learn more about what we do at Rehab U Practice Solutions, <clears throat> you can head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. If you want to learn more about how, uh, how we work, about how Rehab U Practice Solutions helps healthcare organizations with patient engagement, patient retention, um, we tell the clinical side of the world that we help them acquire, attract, engage, and retain more patients. Um, you can head on over again to rehabupracticesolutions.com and learn more about that. Um, until the next time, everybody be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.